live amongst each other that way. So you're here this morning because God has those kinds of purposes in mind. Um, quick update for you guys. I'm so grateful, and Gina and I are blessed that so many of you have been praying for uh, my family as my mom has gone through the health challenges that she is facing. Uh, many of you were here Friday night for the gathering that we had, and we prayed together. Uh, it's been, I guess, about 11 days now since my mom had some form of cardiac arrest that involved oxygen deprivation that has just removed her from any conscious awareness of anything going on around her. So she has had been kept alive, we thought, by machines, pretty much. She's not engaging at all or able to respond at all, so... Uh, yesterday, my dad was feeling like the decision should be made for her to be removed from life support, uh, but she's she's still still breathing. I spent the night with her and yeah. hanging yeah. with her last night, and so appreciate your ongoing prayers as we continue just to care for her in the state that she is in. Um, let me say this because you know. I guess, you know, usually the pastors are on the, on the end of trying to engage you in these moments of your life and to pray for you and for you to receive prayer from us. Um, and if you were here Friday night, Friday night was a gathering that we had for worship, just being together to wait on the Lord and to be together, honoring him and experiencing his presence, pray for one another. And one of the things that, that we prayed for, uh, Peter had led us at the end of the meeting, was to pray for my mom's health. And she's an 81-year-old woman um, with these severe issues at this point. And he prayed for us to pray for healing for her. Now, I know many of you have lived in settings where, where you've been that person in that moment, somebody that you love dearly has suddenly faced a threatening situation and, and you are praying and you are receiving prayer. How do, how do you pray for someone in them? How do you pray for that situation? Do you pray for healing? And, and what if it doesn't happen? All right, well, I get to be on the receiving end of that question because probably more than anyone else, I've, I've got the most vested in whatever's going to happen next with her. Um, and I can, I can tell you from walking in the circumstances as well as what I see in scripture, uh, that's exactly what we do is we pray for healing with the full awareness that we all aren't going to finish the race in these bodies in eternity. God is going to exchange these bodies for glorified bodies. At some point, God is going to say, nope, your days in this body are over and I will not heal you. But that is God's territory and God's business. And when I read the scriptures, I find that when people are in need, we're told to pray for them and we're told to pray for healing. And the Bible never gave us the idea that every time you did that, the outcome would be exactly what you asked for. But that's true in every realm of prayer in our lives. And that can never be a reason for us to not pray. Because we don't know what the outcome will be. Or maybe it won't go the way we want. And we'll get our hopes all up. Yes, we will. And God will be all that we need on the other end of whatever he does choose to do. 
So I, I, I'm grateful for your prayers. I'm grateful for Peter leading us Friday night to pray for God to do the miraculous in our lives. I don't want to live in this world when I stop believing that God no longer intervenes in it in amazing ways. I don't want to, I don't want to live that kind of story of a God who's not involved that way, that we can't ask him to do those things. You know, at the, at the end of this, the outcome of our sovereign God is going to come to pass. And I, I don't know fully what that will be. Along the way, we will pray and seek and trust and then cling to the mercy of God. But I just want to encourage you in that because I know usually you guys are on the receiving end and I'm on the receiving end this time of your prayers. And so thank you for that. Um, I also just want to say something. We, we met here Friday night and it didn't, I'm not trying to razz anybody too bad here, although I am trying to razz you. Uh, can I just tell you the meeting didn't look like this? Just say it that way. Um, Friday night's meeting was different than most anything you'll normally experience on Sunday morning. That's not a knock on Sunday morning. Don't anybody here from Friday night come up and tell me, when do we turn Friday night into Sunday morning? Well, because Sunday morning is Sunday morning. And what we do on Sunday morning is every bit biblically as valuable as what we did on Friday night. But if you only come on Sunday morning, then you miss things like Friday night. If you only come on Sunday morning, you never attend a small group, you never attend those kinds of other meetings that are available to you. You're, you're like one of those people who doesn't know what an appetizer is and you've never had dessert. All right, that's all right. I mean, if you're one of those people, you walk in, you just ignore the appetizer part of the menu and you've never tasted dessert. Now, I'm one of those people that if I eat something, I've got to have something sweet afterwards. It's like there's, a, there's just this incompleteness in the universe, disorder in the universe until I've had something sweet on the back end of whatever it is that I've had. Friday night was like dessert. It's like being in the presence of God in a different way than we are in the presence of God here on a Sunday morning. It was receiving ministry in a different way than what we receive on Sunday morning when we're together. Some similarities, but some differences as well. And so I want to encourage you because part of our plan in the future with Covenant Group Ministry is to install those Friday evenings on a more regular basis where we come together and, and we're, we're not in a hurry. Um, there's not much by way of preaching and direction given. It's more just an evening for us to allow the Holy Spirit to direct us into the needs of our lives, to show up in a big way, to empower us for the future and all that he has for us. So I, it was a sweet sweet time. I didn't mean to say that because it was dessert, but uh, sweet in the cool sense of the word. Uh, It was a great time together. So can you guys just make a little mental note next time you hear that we've got an event like that coming up, you put that on your calendar, Uh, you attend, and then you tell me whether you want to come back again. I'm pretty sure you will. It was, it was a wonderful time. This morning, This morning is New Member Sunday, which means in a little while we're going to present new members to the church. Um, I I want to highlight the topic this morning. You guys want to start my little red clock back there? Um, I want to highlight the topic this morning, uh, kind of in a way that uh, I read a quote to you guys a few weeks ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was sharing his concerns at that point and leading his church in London, England, uh, in the mid-1900s, he had a growing concern that what was taking place in his church as well, but in the body of Christ, was a 
significant appreciation for sound teaching, doctrinal teaching, but an absence of the experiencing of the presence of God. And so he began to write a good bit about that, focused the last few years of his life on concerns in that category, preached messages, highlighting, and in one of the messages I quoted, he called, I think, the most important thing he could share with the church was on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you just read that without any context, theologically, you, you know, if you're like me, I'm, you know, I bump into ideas, my ideas immediately bump into them. That's just how my brain works. So I hear somebody said, the most important thing that I could talk to you about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, I've got other doctrines that are screaming out to me. Wait, what about me? Hold on a second. Have you heard of the atonement? Uh, There's a few other items here that might need to be important. I think his context is what drove his statement. When I look out at the church, I see an absence of something. That's what makes this discussion so important. I feel that way about this message this morning. It's not a message that you might feel, oh, this is so important. I think in the day and age in which we live, whatever it means to be involved in a local church is somewhat of whatever Martin Lloyd-Jones felt when he looked out at the church And he had concerns for how people were living their lives and not experiencing the presence of God. I have a concern for how people are living their lives and attempting to live the Christian life with alternative views of the significance of the church in their life and of their life in the church. My concern is that if this is not addressed, it will redefine the Christian experience in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And, you know, being pastor here for 20 years, 20 years comes pretty fast. But how many, how many of you are concerned for this? Don't raise your hands, but think about this. How many of you are concerned for what Lakeview Christian Center will be 20 years from now? 30 years from now? How many of you walk into this place, look around and go, what's this going to look like 20 years from now? How many of you walk in here with the sense in your own heart to say, what am I building here? Do you notice the pronoun use? What am I building here? Not what are the pastors building here? Not what are the leaders building here? What am I building here? And what is it going to look like 20 years from now, 30 years from now? See, the church can't afford to become people who are watching somebody else build something because that's not biblical. If you're a Christian... Your life is defined by your connection with the people of God on this earth. And you are building something that's going to go into the future. When you're not here anymore, you will have contributed to it. You will have contributed poorly or in a way that made a difference. But you will have contributed to it. So this is not just a message for those folks that are joining today in membership with the church. This is a message for us in regards to who are we going to be as a church and what does it mean? to be a part of a local church. Jonathan Lehman says, if you are a Christian, the local church is not a club. It's not a voluntary organization where membership is optional for you. It's not a friendly group of people who share an interest in religious things and so gather weekly to talk about the divine. Nor is a church a service provider where the customer has all the authority. As if we are telling people to 
pull into the church parking lot at 11 a.m. and get themselves serviced. Tune-ups for your soul in 60 minutes. He says some interesting thing. His little book is called Church Membership. Uh, I guarantee you he won't sell a lot of copies. And he knows it. And when he wrote it, he knew it. Uh, But I'd suggest you read it. It's got some very insightful angles from which it comes to talk about what it means to be a member of the church. But he makes some comments about some of the, the symptoms of our wrong thinking about church membership and how that's being played out in the church today. And he lists a bunch of them. I'll just pick up a few of them. Here's some wrong thinking. Christians can think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining. Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining. Nobody nobody raise your hand on this. But is this a church you were baptized in? There's a lot of reasons why that would be not the case. But just getting baptized somewhere where you had no relationship, you know, just, I just needed some water and somebody to stick me in it. Okay, that's better than nothing, but it falls really, 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 really short of what God had in mind. Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience for Christians and not as an activity for church members who were incorporated into body life together. Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints. Right? If, if the only time you see the people that are in this building are on Sunday mornings, then you, you have become the victim of something outside of the Bible and what you think the body of Christ is. This should not be the only time you are together and relating to these folks. Christians assume... They can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gathering a few Sundays a month or more. That issue is, is new to us. We've not had as much of an issue in that, but we're just joining the ranks with, you know, I've just got other things that are competing with that. So this gathering, this, this holy moment before God where he calls us together is becoming very optional in today's Christian universe. Christians make major life decisions, moving, accepting a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc., without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church, or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. Those are big decisions. just makes sense if this is a meaningful connection that there would be involvement. Christians buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard for how factors such as distance and cost will affect their abilities to serve their church. Christians don't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of the other members of the church, even members they have not met. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. When one rejoices, one rejoices by himself herself. And that, that shouldn't be the church. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be going through the challenges and pitfalls and realities of life without a sense of sharedness amongst those that God has put us together with. We have responsibility for one another. I'm going to introduce you to about a dozen folks today who are new members in the church. Most of you won't know any of them. You have a responsibility for their lives in some measure. 
Maybe not them, maybe the last class that graduated or somebody else who's here, but there is responsibility for all of us. A couple more thoughts from Mr. Lehman. He says, we treat the local church like a club to join or not. And this assumption leaves us conducting our Christian lives somewhat aloof from the local church, even when we do join. Sure, I'm a member, but why in the world would I ask the church to help me think through accepting that job in Albuquerque? But this is not the biblical picture. We need to take off one set of glasses and put on another. If there's anything we've been doing in studying the book of Acts and asking for God to give us a new normal, it is exactly that. Lord, would you give us a new set of glasses to look at these familiar things in our lives so that we can see them the way you wanted us to see them and not the way we have created them to be. He says, if you grab hold of how the Bible views church membership, it just might change the shape of your Christianity. Membership in the Bible is an astounding reality. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to be astounded today as we read your word, as we consider what we see, as we put on the meaningful realities that we encounter in your word. Lord, your your word is not a curse to us. It's life to us. And Lord, I know as we look at some of these concepts that we see in your word, they're going to cross paths with us. They're going to cross us. They're going to inform us about things that we either might not like to do, might not want to do, don't have time to do. But Lord, your word is life to us. Lord, we receive it implanted and it transforms our soul. It's bread from heaven to nourish our souls. So Lord, would you help us today not not to treat it or leave it on the table, but to receive it as a meal of nourishment and to take it with us, to be affected by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look to Acts chapter two. Here's our first stop in some normal church membership in the book of Acts. And I'm only going to go as far as we've been in the book of Acts. I'm going to go a little bit past. Uh, Actually, Jason introduced us to the church in Antioch, so I will steal a little bit of thought from them. But we're just going to run up to date in what we've looked at so far in this book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the New Testament church of Jerusalem. You know, if you were the first church or whatever, this truly is the first church, you know. First assembly, first Baptist church. This was the first church in the world, in Jerusalem, taking place here. And when we turn to the end of chapter 2, right, the closing remarks after the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God has been poured out, what, what did church membership mean for these folks here? And I'm going to make five observations from the churches in the New Testament here. One, membership meant qualified response. Being a member of the church didn't mean that any response was okay. No, no, it meant a particular response was necessary in order to really even be a part of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. After Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost and presented the risen Christ, who is the one who's been spoken of throughout the Old Testament, who has overcome death now and has received the seal of God's approval, by the way. The one that God approved of is the one that you murdered, by the way. And he calls for a response. The crowd 
listens in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we, what do we do? How do we respond to what we've heard? One, they wanted to respond, but they're asking, how do we respond? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every last stinking one of you. All right, that's my translation, but just wanted to make sure you were listening. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look down in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, so here's, what's the response? You hear the gospel, it gets presented, someone witnesses to you, family members been talking to you about Christ, sharing with you from scripture, you hear messages preached, you read a book. What do you do with that? Do you just store it up as knowledge like you went to the world religion class and now you can explain this religion and you can explain that religion and you can explain that and you can explain the Christian religion. You can talk about what its core values are. You can talk about the key doctrines in the Christian religion. You can talk about how churches meet together all over the world and they've been doing so for 2,000 years. You can say all that. Is that the right response? Or does the Bible call for something else beside that? Well, we find that out in Acts chapter 2 here. The first thing it calls for is, is belief. It's fine for you to know this, but do you believe it? Do you receive it, right? Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. Not everybody was baptized. They didn't form a line and say, hey, everybody just wants to get wet. Line forms over here. Y'all start lining up. Thousands of you. Go ahead, line up. We're just dipping people in water. No, they were, they were receiving the word, right? Now, can you traffic into what does that mean to receive the word? Because up until this time, quite honestly, we're all, to some level, hostile to the gospel. Even at a a nice level. I'm not talking about, you know, you're just this big drug-using, thug, hurtful person. You're hostile to the gospel. Look, you can be the nicest, sweetest lady in, in, in the neighborhood. And you can be hostile to the gospel because you want to be Lord of your nice little life, your nice little way. And you're interfering with the claims of Jesus Christ to be Lord and the boss and the owner of your life. So owners come in all kinds of forms and shapes. So to receive the gospel means to no longer keep it out there. It means to receive it. It means to no longer be hostile towards its claims upon my life. I you know, I kind of do this number. I stop doing this. I stop having this kind of an attitude towards talking about God and what God's about and what the Bible says. You know, those people talk about the Bible you know, and you got that getting your back all up kind of feeling because it's talking about stuff. Why do you do that? Because there's something inside of you that's like this when it comes to that. And it just bugs the tar out of you when those people bring it up and talk about it. and Love talking about it. Because there's something resistive. You're not a receiver. You're a resistor to the gospel. So these who responded to hearing the gospel, remember, Stephen's going to preach to a similar crowd soon. And they're going to model something else. 
they're going to model resistance. They're going to get featured because they grind their teeth and they're so angry at what this man says, they pick up stones and kill him. They never get past this posture. But these people do. They are receptive. Whatever they believed before they heard the gospel just got adjusted in a way that they were willing to say, hey, you know what, all these years I've believed this, but now I believe that. All these years I felt loyal to this and I felt loyal to my family and to to this belief system that I was a part of. All these years. But now, what must I do? Something happened to them when Peter preached. God did something to them. And now they're saying, what must I do to receive? And that's what they do. Listen, it, it's, it's not okay for you to hear the gospel with the attitude that, that kind of has that, well, well, that's fine for you, but you know, I've always believed blah, 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 blah. Well, that's, that's fine up until you encounter the gospel. And then the real question becomes, are you willing to give up what you've always believed and receive this? I know we live in a world where it seems to be absolutely okay that everybody believes whatever. It doesn't matter whether you totally contradict somebody else, whether what you believe, if it's right, the person in the seat next to you will be dead in five minutes. But then you turn around and tell them, but you believe whatever you want. It's okay. You know, that's, if that's what you think, you believe that. Well, that's, that's not the church. The church is not a place where everybody's believing what they want. It's not that. It, that doesn't make it bigoted. It doesn't make it obnoxious. It makes it biblical. Right? Here's, here's what the church becomes. True Christian church is a collection of people with a uniform belief about the person and work of Christ and the saving response to it. If you get either one of those wrong, you're not a part of the church. So you can't be a member because you have not received the gospel into your own life. So belief is part of the qualified response. Repentance. Peter called on them to repent in in verse 37, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent. What does repentance really, really mean? It means to recognize that whatever my life has been about, whatever my program is, whatever my love affection is, whatever the values for me are, whatever my beliefs about God were, whatever morality has been installed in my life, I'm repenting from everything that's not what God has said. And I'm turning to him. Listen, according to the scriptures, that's a necessary response. You can't be a Christian without repenting. Because everybody born into this world is born into the world wrong. Everybody is standing at the wrong address in life. And again, whether you're the old lady who's nice or the really terrible guy, everybody is living at the wrong address. Now, maybe when you move to God's address, you won't have to change your clothing style because it's modest and great. You won't have to give up smoking pot and doing whatever else you're doing because you never did anyway. But right now, if you've not repented and embraced Christ, you live at this address called in Adam. You're in the race of man that need, you need to come out of Adam, the Bible says. Adam was the, the father of all of creation that fell from God. Adam lives at the wrong address. And we're all related to Adam. So no matter what the rest of your life is like, you have to repent and turn to God and he will place you in Christ. So everybody has to repent. So to be part of the church involves 
repentance. To be part of the church, according to Peter's response, involves baptism. All right, listen, can I just say this, and I'm not even going to explain it. None of this merits you anything. It's not a merit system. This is not a ladder to climb. This is not if you do these things well enough, God will be impressed and then he will make you a Christian. No, you do all these things because God has already made you a Christian. Right? So we're already qualified. The grace of God has already found you and all the slop, all the rebellion. That's when the grace of God finds us and saves us. But then baptism takes place. Well, what do we do? Okay, we've been affected. You've preached the word. We're affected. We're turned inside out, Peter. What do we do? Be baptized, every last stinking one of you. All right, now maybe today you're sitting here and you're saying, really? Well, I've been a Christian for several years. I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know. Every, so once you get, everybody gets baptized after they got saved? All right, if, if you're just hearing that for the first time, yes. If you're hearing that for the second time or the third time or the hundredth time, Why? Have you not been baptized? Well, you know, Keith, it's baptism. I mean, it's not like I'm committing adultery or something. It's baptism. Um, listen, I can just comfortably say this to you. It is a form of disobedience. This is commanded. You believe, be baptized. Why? Well, I just haven't gotten around to it or, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of weird about being in water publicly. I don't know what your deal is. You know, whatever. <laughs> Let me just ask you this question. If you look at the Bible, and you've known this before you came to this meeting, you've looked at the Bible, and the Bible told you to do something, and you treated it like you didn't need to do something, can I just ask you, how many times do you regularly do that in other aspects of your life? So this is what makes the church start having those bumps and bruises all over it that where it stops looking like the church because we start having the idea that I will obey the things that I feel like obeying and I will not obey the things I don't feel like. So anytime the Bible calls on me to do something that's awkward, challenging, difficult, embarrassing, those get put into the optional category, into the special people category, the really zealous for God category. I'm just a normal Christian. No, no, you're a disobedient Christian. You're not a normal Christian. Get rid of that label. Call the church office on Monday seriously and say, I want to be baptized. I don't, I don't want to go another day without being baptized. Every last stinking one of you. <laughs> all right. Uh, baptism, it's just all over the New Testament, right? Samaria, they, were, they, were, they believed, Acts 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, right? The Ethiopian, when he believed, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Paul, great apostle Paul, when he gets saved in Acts chapter nine, he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. We've been studying Cornelius household in Acts chapter 10. Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Right, this is normal Christianity. Let's not make it weird and let's not overlook it. Let's obey where God gives us a chance to obey. All right, Acts chapter two, last thing, normal Christians, members, verse four to one, for those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, this, there's, a, there's something he can scoot right past. They, they were added that day. All right, so there's an identifiable quantity right here that somebody else got put in. 
That's an important concept. There wasn't this, oh my gosh, no one knows who all the Christians are anywhere in the universe. We're just mystically all members of the body of Christ somewhere out there. Who knows? There was in Jerusalem an identifiable group of people so that if you put one more in, they knew one more just got in. That's how they knew. And they actually numbered them. They said, now there's 3,000 more that were added here. So how many we got now? And they counted them up. All right, that's, the church is an identifiable element. Are you a part of it? You'll know. You're joined to a group of people in an identifiable way. That's what that means. All right, number two. Membership. What did membership mean in these New Testament churches? Membership meant ownership, right? We're here in Jerusalem. These guys get saved, verse 42, Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, all right? Most immediate thing happening here, they identified with the meeting structure and schedule of the church. I know that, that sounds petty, doesn't it? What, we're supposed to be here? Uh, well, that's what normal Christians did when the apostles put together and they created this out of nowhere. I, I don't know. Maybe some smart people were saying, hey, dude, dude, scripture and verse. Really? You're, we got a meeting what night? Come on, man. Show me that in the Old Testament, Peter. Come on. They called meetings and people responded by participating. That was what a normal member did. They didn't have... This set aside, well, no, we're kind of not, that's not our thing. I don't really like those kinds of meetings. Well, they had teaching meetings and they had fellowship meetings and they came together for communion and prayer. They lived amongst each other in meaningful ways. That's what normal membership was. And then they took ownership of that. They owned the schedule. It wasn't those guys. How many of y'all got that those guys mentality? Oh, those guys. Oh, Lord those guys, what they put in the schedule now. Good night. I got a Friday night. What the heck? Those guys, those guys, these, these guys owned it. Everybody owns, everybody's an owner. You own it yourself as a member. There's not a, those guys in the midst. Verse 43 and awe came upon every soul. Everybody owns it. Everybody gets a sense of awe. Few people own it. Few people get to feel awe. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Right? So, all right, so then there was, in the gathering of the church, there was an awareness of need. Somebody's going through a crisis. Somebody's in need in their life. I'm aware of it. I'm actually taking some kind of action in my life. I'm taking some responsibility. I'm taking some ownership of your need in my life. You're not just some news information piece that this doesn't really affect me. I'm actually willing to part with something. I'm going to sell something and give it to you for your good. I own your need that way in my life. That's what these guys were experiencing, that sense of ownership. Jonathan Lehman says, Christians don't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of the other members of their church, even members they have not met. Right, do, you, do you remember the day, we don't get too far in Jerusalem, when the church has been formed and a ministry needs outgrows the existing leaders? John, you know, right, Acts chapter 6, we studied this. Who took ownership on that day? There were a group of widows who were being neglected. Just it was a practical issue, bringing food to those who couldn't provide for themselves. 
they were being overlooked by the existing structure that was in place. Could have been some issues there. Maybe not. Just innocent. Can't get to it. Who took ownership of that? Well, just people in church did. People like Stephen and Philip. They took ownership of those kinds of needs in the church. They, they didn't have a mentality that said the special, the special group owns the church. We're just, we're, just, we're just guests here. You know, I have a guest sign in when I come to the church. I'm a guest. I come as a guest. What do you expect guests to do? Uh, what do you expect owners to do? Owners take responsibility. Owners own the thing. They make it fly. I mean, 20 years now, I don't know if I could count the number of times where someone has approached me or probably one of the other guys inquiring about when we're going to do X, Y, or Z. You know, when, when, when are we going to do more like mercy ministry? You know, like get, just get involved in the community, just be involved in people's lives in the community that are really hurting. And you know, when do we, we get involved more in the inner city? Uh, when do we do something more for our seniors in the church and you know, widows? What are we going to do more for? What are we going to do more for? And, and it's almost presented like, when are you going to make that happen? Um, I'm, I'm just one of the owners here. You're one of the owners. You own the people in this church. You own their needs. You, you see a need? There is nothing here that says you have to, you have to wear a badge, a deputized badge with a sidearm to, well, maybe you do, maybe you should wear a sidearm if you're going in the inner city to do ministry. But if you have a desire to go do ministry in that category, here's what we tell people. If you have a burden to do that, we will seek to rally people around you who also have a burden to do that. But you don't want to be in the church waiting for, well, well, no, I'm, I'm sort of a guest. You're the owner. Why don't, why don't you go ahead and arrange that? And that's, that's not what New Testament membership looked like. If you're here, you have a burden for widows here. Uh, thank God that you have a burden for widows. God may be awakening in you a desire and a power and an enablement to serve the widows in this church. You are the owner of that. And you want to come run that by us? You want to come get some input, farm for some ideas, see if there's any ways we could connect you with needs? Absolutely. But please do not fold your arms and wait for somebody else to own the church. You are a member of the church. You own the church. When God made you a part of his body, you have ownership in this place. here's Here's an exercise. Okay, I left two blanks on your paper there. Right now, can you think of people that you have fellowshiped with in this church that you don't recall seeing them for months? Just think for a second with me right now. You used to see them on Sunday morning. They were in your small group. You used to see them at Alpha. And you've not seen them for months. Heck, you, maybe all of 2013, you have just have not seen them. Question. Have you contacted them? Do you think anybody's contacted them? Well, I don't know. I'm, 
I'm assuming the official contact person has contacted them. <laughs> Who's that? Like one of the pastors, maybe, or staff member, Judy? <laughs> Can I just tell you, all, all Judy does, I don't know where Judy is, all Judy does is just own the church. That's all she's doing. But there's an aspect to her that there's, you know, she doesn't try to own everything about the church, but there's an aspect to the life of the church here that she owns and she feels a responsibility for it. And she runs after that aspect and she tries to get other people to run after it as well. But, but here's, here's the reality. In our hustle and bustle, we're learning to do life. We do life differently than the New Testament. We do a lot about Christianity differently than the New Testament. And God sends us people and he joins them to us and then they go missing. And they don't hear from anyone. And immediately they question the value. Was it real to be part of that church? Did people really care for me? Or did they just care for me when I show up at their toes? The second I don't show up in their world, hey, you got an address, right? You live in an address? You do certain things in your life? You know? You get certain activities that you like, certain functions in the church you like, and whoever crosses your path by coincidence gets warm greeting and care. But if that person disappears on you, you're, well, we're done with them. You come into my world and I'll care for you. But if I got to go into your world, you're not going to see me. How many of y'all want to be a part of a church like that? At some point, you're going to hit potholes in your life where you don't want to go in anybody's world. You're confused, you're discouraged, your faith is drying up, and you don't want to put forth the effort to be around people who are going to tell you stuff that you don't feel like hearing anyway, and you've got a rough attitude going on right now. And if that person's going to be cared for, you're going to have to go to them. You're going to have to go to them. The owners of the church are going to have to go and find them. So here's what I want you to do. You get two blanks there. I'm sure more than two names have already come to mind of people you know personally who you just don't see anymore. All right, take ownership of their welfare and their future in the spirit. Take ownership of it right now. Write their name down and intend this week to contact them. Say, hey, you're not lying. This is true. The Lord brought you to mind to me Sunday morning after Keith put a gun to my head. No, don't say that part. Uh, The Lord brought you to mind on Sunday morning. And I just, you know, I haven't seen you in a while, bro. How how you doing? Are you okay? Don't scold them. Don't try and fix everything. Just care for them. Just show up in their world. Find out what address they're at. Say, hey, I just was concerned how you're doing. Okay, can we get together? Whatever. Just was sending you an email to say, I miss seeing you, buddy. Hope things are going okay. Get back with me when you can. Something. Right? Own people. That's what members do. They own. All right, stop number two is the recent church pant in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Let's pick up a few ideas here. This will be our last stop in the church of Antioch. Let's see, verse 19. 
Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, right? There you go again. You got an identifiable group. So when more come in, they are added. They are observably connected to the church. So a couple of things to learn about New Testament members from Antioch. Be our third thing. Membership meant being exhorted to faithfulness in the mission, right? You got a group of believers. God is saving people in Antioch. Barnabas shows up. And what does he do when he shows up in verse 23? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain in the purpose of God. He taught them. He exhorted them. He was encouraging them. He was strengthening them. He was nudging them forward into this purpose of God that God had ordained for them this mission of the church upon the earth. That's where Barnabas and Paul are going to take the people of the church. They're going to exhort them into a category that they probably didn't know much about. But the agenda of their life was about to become great commission oriented. And Barnabas was going to lead the charge. He was going to charge those who were discouraged to remain faithful. He was going to charge those that were half interested to get on board fully. That's what he was going to do. Right in your outline there, I wrote, Today's gospel... Features independent benefit and help. That's the main feature of today's gospel. This, this, will, this is going to do something for you and your little world. What's going on in your world? Hey, I got something that can fix your little world. That, that's kind of what it sounds like. People attend in order to get a form of self-help. However, in Antioch and in Jerusalem, they became part of a mission in this world where their approach to life mattered the way that they were going to live from that moment forward, the way they would use their energy, the way they would spend their money, the morality with which they would live their lives, suddenly it mattered. It mattered in God's purpose in their life. And therefore leaders, if they really are leading what God is doing, were exhorting the people in those categories. They were exhorting them to pray. They were exhorting them to worship. They were exhorting them to the study of God's word. They were exhorting them to care for one another. They were exhorting them to be Christians. They were exhorting them that the manner of their life mattered. The way you live your life communicates something about what the church is. Therefore, your life matters. What you do with your life matters because you're part of something big and glorious and meaningful and important. That's what exhortation was. Paul Washer in his book, The Gospel's Power and Message, says one of the greatest crimes committed by this present Christian generation is its neglect of the gospel. And it is from this neglect that all other maladies spring forth. 
Such a gospel deforms the church from a spiritual body of regenerated believers into a gathering of carnal men who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. When the church proclaims a lesser gospel, it fills up with carnal men who share little interest in the things of God. And the maintenance of such men is a heavy burden upon the church. See, the, the, the church is on a mission for the glory of God to expand into realms of darkness until God shuts his place down. To proclaim the great value of God upon this earth in a world that has found everything else, every other trinket and toy and piece of dirt, valuable. The church stands to say, no, you've misplaced value. Value is in God and God alone. He's worth everything. When you look at the church and the church doesn't live a life that says anything like that, it harms the church. He has an interesting way of saying that. And it fills up with carnal men who share little interest in the things of God. And the maintenance of such men is a heavy burden upon the church. How many of you guys have lived, cared for, ministered to people who don't want to get caught? You chase them and you chase them and you chase them and they don't want to get caught. You try to help them, you try to help them, you try to help them and they don't want to change. They are a burden. Now, if we love people, we get involved in carrying one another's burdens. But if you're a person who's just chronically on the receiving end of being chased, listen, you're called to go chase some people yourself. You're not just called into the church to constantly be the one on the receiving end of having to be helped and fixed and corrected. And You're called to go chase some other people. one of the things that was happening in this church was they were being exhorted to do this, right? I'm exhorting you right now. Sometimes exhortation ain't real comfortable though. So some of us kind of like, hey, dude, can you turn down the exhortation then? If that's what exhortation is, can we kind of back off that a little bit? Tell a joke, will you? Lighten up. Well, no, okay. We'll try some jokes, but we need to be exhorted sometimes. And Barnabas was doing that in the local church. All right, stop number three is the same church in Antioch, but when it's grown up, it's become mature now. <clears throat> Fourth thing we see membership meant becoming gospel mobilizers. Here the church at some point begins to send and partner and become goers in this realm of the gospel, right? Acts chapter 13 is still about the church in Antioch. Verse three, they've identified and set apart Barnabas and Saul. And it says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So into the mission fields go two men who have been extremely influential in this church, but they're now on a mission elsewhere. They go on their mission. They come back to the church, giving account for their mission. At the end of chapter 14, verse 25, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed to Antioch. So now they've made this big circle and they've come back to the church that sent them where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this 
team sent out is coming back to this church, this identifiable group of people who took ownership, they more than likely funded the venture, prayed for it, encouraged them. These men who were leaving a work that meant something to them. Paul was a person. Barnabas is a person. Maybe there was some fear in going into the unknown at this point. Just the two of them off into the wild blue yonder, leaving something that was valuable, that was significantly growing and having an impact in the Christian world. And they're going to walk away from it at this tenuous time. The church took ownership of confirming the call, of strengthening the call, of praying for that call, of funding the call. And when they came back together, the church rallied around wanting to hear what happened. Right? I'm pretty sure, I don't know, just my suspicion, that when they called this family church business meeting, when they came back, they didn't have a hard time getting a quorum. Just suspicious, you know? That people wanted to hear about the mission. See, when you take ownership, you take ownership of Paul and Barnabas's mission and they come back, you want to hear what's going on. What happened, man? We've been praying for you. You know, we gave all this money. How did, what did God do? Right, ownership will do that kind of thing for you. They were goers in the church. Acts chapter six, Philip is a volunteer who ends up going with the gospel. Timothy, later on in the book of Acts, Paul finds Timothy a little town says, I want Timothy to accompany me. And Timothy is on his way and following him into the ends of the earth. Paul Washer says, few modern day converts ever make their way into the fellowship of the church. Those who do often fall away or have lives marked by habitual carnality. Untold millions walk our streets, sit in our pews, unchanged by the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet they're convinced of their salvation because one time in their life, they raised a hand at an evangelistic campaign or repeated a prayer. Listen, I'm, <clears throat> I'm today describing what happens after you get saved. You become this kind of stuff in the church. The idea that I have a great deal of confidence because oh, I can remember it was 15, 17 years ago. I went to my aunt's church one time. I was going through a hard time and they had an altar call and I went up and prayed a prayer. And then you look at your life after that and it looks nothing like anything we're describing here. You, you, you don't know what it is to be a part of a church. You've never been baptized. You, you're not partnering with sending the gospel to the ends of the earth. Listen, if the gospel doesn't mean that kind of thing to you, it's because it doesn't mean that kind of thing to you. If you've received the gospel and you're standing in Acts chapter two and you heard the word of God preached to you and it turned your life upside down and the next gasp of your spiritual air was, what must I do? I got to get right here with God. If you heard the gospel that way, well, then years later, you sound like everything we're describing here. You sound like believers in Jerusalem and believers in Antioch. If, if you got a, an altar that you came to and you prayed a prayer and it seemed to mean something to you, but you can't find God anywhere in your life. Stop putting confidence in whatever you did. You want to be confident? Look at what you did yesterday and the week before that. If it's living and vibrant, well, then be confident. You're alive. Check your pulse now. What do you do? I mean, to check to see if you're alive, do you go pull out your birth certificate? Is that what you do? Bonnie, can you dig through that drawer? I know my birth. I know I'm alive. I know my birth certificate's in here somewhere. Look. I was born. It's official. I was born, man. I know I'm alive. Are you alive right now? 
I can feel my pulse. That's how I know I'm alive. This is what life looks like for Christians. You remember the body of Christ? You're living your life for the glory of God? That's what life looks like. If it doesn't look that way, you don't have a pulse. You need to be very, very seriously concerned. Whatever your past holds, question it. I know I'll make people weird and uncomfortable here. Listen, I'm just, I'm just giving you a summarized version of the book of First John. This is what the Bible sounds like. You go read First John, walk away and tell me whether the First John is messing with today. Asking you about your practice today, not just about something happened to me a long time ago. I think, I'm pretty sure. It seems significant then. I don't know. Last thing. Membership meant flexible local preferences and experiences. Flexible local preferences. All right, can you just live in Antioch for a moment? You got, you got Hall of Fame people here in Antioch. Little church gets started. Jerusalem sends, sends Mr. Wonderful Barnabas to you. I mean, this guy, his name is the son of encouragement. Oh my gosh. He doesn't have an enemy on the planet. He shows up, starts leading meetings. Everybody feels like, oh my, I am so loved. This is like nirvana. I'm never leaving. My church is incredible. You should come meet my pastor. He is the nicest guy on the planet. And so Barnabas realizes need more than nice. So he goes and gets Paul. Don't think Paul had kind of quite the niceness feel to him. I think Paul was like being ministered to by a porcupine. Uh, but, but Paul was a theological fire hose. And so here you're sitting in this church and you're getting loved on by Barnabas and you're getting drowned by theology by Paul. You're getting your mind blown. It's like you get that, you know, he's kind of sharing thoughts that they're, they're going to go into Romans 11. Just blowing your mind. You're being taught like, oh my gosh, this guy's incredible. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, now set apart Barnabas and Paul. They're leaving. And you got Procurus going to be filling the pulpit. Now, I don't know. I don't want to rag Procurus. You know, he's probably a nice guy. Uh, but I, I kind of doubt he's got, he's got game like Barnabas and Paul. I don't know. I just, I think I'm okay in suspecting that. I'm thinking this is a huge downgrade. Antioch just went from prolific Hall of Fame speakers to, okay, how was service? Oh, it was all right. You know, kind of hard to compare to these two guys. But that was God. And I'm pretty sure everybody didn't stop attending or start going to another church. It was a sense of ownership of this church and membership and participation in it. Here's my last quiz for you. Question before we present our members today. Are you a, are you a member of Lakeview Christian Center? Now, let me just make this clear because we're not real big on acting like We've got some kind of copyright issue here. We're, we're Lakeview Christian Center. You a member of Lakeview Christian Center? Okay, we're just one of a bunch of local churches around here. Just one of them. Just happen to have an identifiable place to meet, group of people, call the local church. Our name happens to be Lakeview Christian Center. All right, nothing special there. If you're a Christian, you are called to be a member somewhere. I'm preaching at Lakeview this morning. If I was somewhere else, I'd change my words. Are you a member of Lakeview Christian Center? Here's some questions. Have you biblically responded to the gospel? 
Have you received God's word and repented of your own way of life and religion? Have you been baptized? Have you been added to the church in an identifiable, real way? Second, have you taken ownership of the life of Lakeview Christian Center? Do you own this place? If this is your church, please stop signing in as a guest. You are not a guest. You are an owner. And you are responsible for the life going on here. In what way have you taken ownership? Who would be affected by your ownership? Who can you identify in the church that you would know my ownership is affecting other people? Third, do you have an affection for the mission of the church? I mean, you you have a passion for what goes on and what happens as a result of us being a church together. Do you appreciate being exhorted to participate in and sacrifice for the sake of the mission? Your time, serving, your finances, your praying, being trained. Or does this rub you that we make you feel obligated in this area? Come on, you can be honest with me. Be honest with me now. Don't be honest with me after you leave. Just keeping it real. (laughs) By the way, on that day, you won't be honest with me. You'll be honest with somebody else who will come and be honest on your behalf. Do you understand how far we've drifted from being a New Testament church? Listen, if you start attending a church, you leave here, you go start attending a church where you don't ever feel poked and prodded and moved from your comfortable location, run as fast as you can because you're not being led. When I read these guys in the New Testament, they cared passionately about something. They regularly installed little heat so the location wouldn't become icy. And you move on. Who is getting a little, a little hot here. I think I need to pick my feet up and get moving. I need to live a little differently here. I think I need to have a prayer life. I've been saved for a while. don't have one. I think I better move on that, maybe. Maybe. Don't just be rubbed the wrong way. Well, I, just, I feel obligated when you do that kind of stuff. All right, well, come and talk to me about that because you, you may be hearing me say something I'm not saying. So don't just get rubbed wrong. You come ask about it if you get rubbed wrong. But in the New Testament, if you're a member of a New Testament church, you will be exhorted. That's a good thing. Can everybody say that's a good thing? It's good to be exhorted. Don't run from that. Are you more a customer than you are an owner? We're taught in this world to be customers. Everything in your life is customer related. When you come to the church, you're not a customer. You're an owner. Customers have high expectations of others, but low expectations of themselves, right? Nobody shops at Walmart with a high expectation of, no, no, I got it. I know where everything is. No, I got it. I mean, if stuff has been moved, some idiot did something wrong. Where'd they move the toilet paper, for goodness sake? No expectation that you're supposed to remember where it is, knucklehead. You've shopped here before. I'm a customer. Customers are easily offended when their expectations aren't met. Customers spend more time seated and observing than standing and serving. Look, when you own something, what do you do? You, you've got to get up and make it work, right? You guys who own businesses, you don't get to sit down much, do you? 
Customers are better at critiquing than at contributing. Customers are specialists in their values and preferences rather than other important needs and ministries. Hey, listen, I, I understand you got a list of things that you love and you love it passionately. And as far as you're concerned, the entire universe revolves around those things. And as a customer, doggone it, you want the church to revolve around those things too. But if you're an owner, you, re- you recognize there's other things going on in people's lives, in ministries that are important outside of your favorite categories. And so you have an ability to validate other things. A customer just says, hey, give me what I think is important, doggone it. But that doesn't work for the church. Customers see church leaders as providers of services rather than leaders to be followed. And in the New Testament, ain't nobody doing customer service in the New Testament. It just doesn't exist. And that's not the call for leaders and pastors today either. God hasn't called us to be customers of the church, but rather members of the church. Last thought from Mr. Lehman. He says, when you open your Bible, stop looking for signs of a club with its voluntary members. Look instead for a Lord and his bound together people. Look also for other forms of unity, brothers and sisters in a family, branches on a vine. Is church membership in the Bible? If you're looking for the right thing, it's everywhere. Well, this morning, it's here. So we're going we're gonna to pray for our latest edition of church members that are joining their lives to ours and all of us together, I trust, taking responsibility for these folks. So I'm going to call them up. And we're going to pray together before we conclude. Uh, Anna Bodecker. Come on down. William Burns, come on down. Giselle Estrada, come on down. Ryan Robolo, come on down. Jillian, is it Ramagosa or Romagosa, Jillian? Ramagosa. You had to have said Rome, you know. Andreas Suarez, come on down, Andreas. Cliff and Belinda Vogel, come on. Ashley Whittemore and Joe Willoughby. Come on down. This is our graduating class. You know, this is this is so much more than just to list the names of people who choose to hang out at 5885 Florida Lee. Um, these, these are builders. Whatever, whatever Lakeview is going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I trust that it's going to have fingerprints on it from these lives. These, these are people who are, are taking a step of entrusting themselves to a family. They're kind of being adopted, if you will, into a place that God has designed for care, for a particular lifestyle. It's appropriate for them to look into their Bibles and expect, hey, what I see here is going to be lived out or attempted to be lived out amongst people who won't do it perfect. And they're not perfect. I think we covered that at some point. Did we cover that in the class? Uh, I think we kicked all the perfect people out. We figured they'd screw us up. So these are the imperfect part of the class with us today. Uh, 
But this is, this is a precious element because our lives are meant to be so influential and supportive of one another. And these guys are, they all got a story. And if they could tell you their story, there'd be high moments and low points, be celebrations and desperation. And that story is going to continue, and we're going to walk with them through that. And there are going to be moments when they're excited as all get out, and we're celebrating with them. And there's going to be moments when there's a pool of tears around their feet, and we're there to mourn with them. So that listen, that's what it means to, to be family, and, and, and we don't ever want to lose that, no matter how big we get. If each of us take ownership of what God's called us to be in the local church, we'll never lose it. We will never, ever lose it, no matter how big this building gets. Let's pray for our friends and brothers and sisters here. Lord, thank you for the testimony present here. Lord, this is one life after another that your saving grace has run after and found. While they were enemies, Christ died for them. And then he sent his spirit after them to convict and to lead and to give faith to them that they might be yours, restored to you. And Lord, when you restored them to you, you made us family together for you are our father. And together, Lord, we are family together. And Lord, we, like most families, we are not a perfect family. And we have need of grace. But Lord, we want to be fully the family you've called us to be. So Lord, we just renew our hearts this morning. We are reminded again of your high hopes for our lives as we look at your word. God, we pray as a a church to welcome these folks into our lives. Lord, we just, this morning, God, we want to add them into our hearts. God, we want to take responsibility for their lives. Lord, we want them to have an awareness that they, they will never walk alone in this world. They will never face the enemy on the road alone. We will partner with them. We love these folks because of your great love for them. So God, we open our hearts this morning as a church. Lord, we welcome them into our midst as gifted individuals that you have given by the Spirit unique abilities to touch our lives and shape our lives and participate in our future. God, we thank you that in your sovereign purpose, this is where you added them at this point in their lives. So Lord, give us grace today to take ownership of membership. Lord, may we not be one guest in this place for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. All right. Take your name tags upstairs. Go help the youth out. Find somebody.